Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Paul Halpern will join us to discuss synchronicity. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science show. Well, the quantum world mystifies even those who have studied it for years. Joining us today to shed some light on intricacies and mysteries of the quantum world is Dr. Paul Halpern. Dr. Halpern is an American professor of physics and fellow in the humanities at the University of Sciences in Philadelphia. He has written many popular science books and articles, including The Cyclical Serpent, Cosmic Wormholes, and great beyond. His upcoming book, Synchronicity, The Epic Quest to Understand the Quantum Nature of Cause and Effect, explores some of the more fascinating aspects of the quantum world. And Dr. Halpern, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you. It's great to be on the show. Well, fascinating new book that's Synchronicity. You talk about the more uh, intriguing aspects of quantum mechanics. Why did you decide to write the book? So I was interested in the idea of connections in the universe And the idea of connections has changed radically since the advent of quantum mechanics. In the days of Newton, it was very clear that two things are connected because there's a cause leading to an effect. And the idea was that the universe was kind of an ironclad network of links that were absolutely deterministic. But then quantum mechanics came along and said that two things can be connected, such as two electrons, without having a causal link. So for example, in a quantum entanglement experiment, you could prepare two electrons in a state, you could send one in one direction and the other in the other direction, and if you measured the spin, a quantum property of one of them, then you automatically know instantaneously what the spin is of the other one. Somehow that information is conveyed in space, somehow there's this idea that things can be non-local, and that fascinates me, especially because I know about the long mystical tradition, and in mysticism, things can be linked without causality. That was always contrasted with science. So with science, you always had to find a chain reaction, a mechanistic cause. In mysticism, you didn't need a cause, but now we have something that's different from both of them. We have quantum mechanics, which is also scientific, but doesn't necessarily have a definitive network of causal connections. So that fascinates me how you can distinguish between the quantum view and the mystical view. How, how can we make that distinction? And in fact, some quantum scientists started delving into things that were of the mystical bent just because they thought, well, maybe we could use science to try to explain things that are so-called paranormal. Part of my book is why quantum physicist Wolfgang Pauli, who was this very hard-headed, austere scientist, turned 
toward psychology and then parapsychology and try to investigate these mystical phenomena. We still don't have a, a firm grasp on exactly what quantum mechanics is telling us about the nature of the world, right? Yeah, so quantum mechanics is a bit of a mystery. And since the advent of quantum mechanics, since the 1920s, people, including Albert Einstein, have been trying to come up with mechanistic ways to describe what's going on behind the scenes. But strangely enough, no matter how much we try to understand what's going on behind the scenes, we haven't been very successful. And that's because the mechanisms are via an abstract entities called quantum wave functions. And these can't be measured directly. These happen in, you know, in the background. So it, it's a bit frustrating that so much goes on in quantum physics in the background. And you have to take these physical measurements, but you can't always know everything about every particle, about everything, because you can't always take all the measurements you want to at once. There's a fundamental uncertainty in nature at the quantum level. And so with this quantum entanglement where things can be sort of instantaneously communicated, does that just sort of further the veil or have any clearer explanation from all the entanglement that exists? Well, interestingly, in the 1920s, physicists took different sides. There were some physicists like Einstein who said, well, the reason that quantum mechanics is mysterious is because we don't know enough and that we need a broader theory. So Einstein spent the last three decades of his life trying to come up with a unified field theory that would explain all of nature in an absolutely clockwork deterministic way that would explain quantum mechanics as well in a way that would be completely predictable. But then the mainstream quantum mechanics people, such as Bohr, Heisenberg, Pauli, and so forth, thought that there needs to be recognition that quantum mechanics is a bit of a black box and that you can see what the input is, you can see what the output is, but you don't always know what's going on behind the scenes. It's a bit like, like a smartphone. If you are working an app, you don't see everything that's going on behind the scenes and you don't necessarily need to see that because you want to see what the end result is. You want to see the final product. Quantum mechanics is like that. There are the un underlying mechanisms that produce an answer, produce excellent answers, but we don't always know what's going on. And that's why Pauli and, and some other physicists thought, well, maybe there are things having to do with the mind, which is also mysterious, that could be explained if we just try to put science toward that, try to understand how the mind works using science. And that's when Pauli engaged in a collaboration with the psychoanalyst Carl Jung, which started off as a therapeutic encounter, but ended up as a collaboration. And Jung had coined the term synchronicity, meaning an a-causal connecting principle, in contrast to causal connecting principles like, like uh, forces and so forth that apply causally. Well, Jung interestingly noted that the difference between quantum mechanics and classical mechanics is that you have these a-causal connections. But he, he took that a little bit further and tried to apply that towards psychological situations, dreams, and so forth. And Pauli was a great dreamer. He shared more than a thousand dreams with Jung during the course of his therapy with all sorts of symbolic value, all sorts of numerology. And he was 
Jung's secret patient for for many years. And then finally, when Pally and Jung started to actually collaborate and put their names on the same book together, people suspected, and more than suspected, that Pally was a secret patient. Two well-known names in both their fields, and then here they are together. I mean, how much did they influence one another? Well, Jung, interestingly enough, was originally influenced by Einstein. The two of them briefly lived together in the same city in Zurich. Einstein was a professor at, at Zurich, and they met for dinner. And Jung was fascinated by connections in relativity, that you have this amorphous space-time and the possibility of maybe having things connected in funny ways in space and time that might also break causality. And then later, when Pally sh showed up at, in Jung's office, wrote to Jung, and then was analyzed, Jung took that as a great opportunity to learn something about quantum physics. And the two of them had a long correspondence, and Jung wanted to come up with a way of characterizing the world, both in matter and the mind. And that's when he asked uh, Pauli for some ideas about connections, how to codify connections in the universe. Jung came up with a symbol in which he connected causality, synchronicity, and then space and time. And he drew it in kind of a funny way as this kind of a cross because he was interested in things coming in fours. And there were two pairs forming this, uh, this cross, causality and synchronicity versus space and time. And Pauli said, well, you can't really separate space and time because according to relativity, they are both connected as space-time. And that's when Jung said, oh, well, okay, what do you suggest? And then Pauli said, well, make, maybe connect space-time with energy and momentum, which is something that's uh, a connection in, in relativity. So it was this sort of detailed, nuanced idea about synchronicity and Jung's ideas that Pauli helped out with. This early dialogue sowed the seed for a very unique idea regarding the quantum nature of cause and effect. Well, certainly Jung's ideas have influenced psychoanalysis, Jungian psychoanalysis. In terms of physics, I think what the term synchronicity is not really used very much in physics. I mean, I used it because I just think it's a brilliant term and it's a way of contrasting uh, causality with something else. And I think that Jung correctly pointed out that we need to come up with a new principle of nature. Certainly, Pauli's ideas, particularly with regard to symmetry and anti-symmetry, have been very, very influential because Pauli and Jung talked about this idea of pairings, that everything is paired with something else, which stems from, in some ways, from quantum physics. Pauli thought that this idea of pairings was a fundamental revolutionary discovery in quantum mechanics it needed to be taken more seriously, that systems can be described not just through their causal connections, but through information derived by knowing a symmetry. For example, going back to the case of electrons, if you know that one electron has spin up, you automatically know that the other one has spin down. Well, that's not a causal relationship, but it's an anti-symmetric relationship. So Pauli was convinced that everything in the world could be explained by symmetries. And the one setback he had was in 1957, Yang and Lee came up with the idea of parity 
non-conservation in the weak forests, which was tested by C.S. Wu and shown to be the case that certain kinds of decays are not symmetric and they don't have mirror image symmetry. And Pally was a little bit shaken by that. He didn't quite believe in it at first. But finally, he came to realize that uh, not everything in nature is symmetric. And he even discussed it with Jung, and they thought, well, maybe there's another way of explaining it, um, explaining the idea that not everything is symmetric, and tried to incorporate that into a model of the universe. How are these ideas being tested? So with quantum entanglement, there have been many, many experiments involving taking not necessarily spin particles, because those are a little bit difficult to prepare, but taking uh, photons, which can be in two different polarization states. So photons, quantum property of photons is that they could be polarized in a counterclockwise way, meaning like a counterclockwise screw or a clockwise screw. And most light that we see in nature is a combination of the two. But the interesting thing is, if you can prepare a photon in, in one of its polarization states, let's say counterclockwise, can we convey that information to a very distant photon, widely separated? And that's what some of the, what are called Bell, Bell experiments, named for John Bell, who proved a the theorem about quantum entanglement. And these experiments show that, yes, you can prepare a photon in a certain state, send a beam, a beam of light, which is kind of a guiding beam, which tells you what kind of what the, um, the background state is, to another station, and then you can immediately set up the polarization state of another photon. So somehow that quantum state information is conveyed remotely. One of the interesting things also, that information doesn't appear to be transmitted until it's actually observed. Yeah, that's a, a mystery too. I mean, some people want to remove, in quantum measurement theory, want to remove the role of the observer. But Pauli was a strong believer in the role of the observer. And that's another factor that led him into exploring the mind as well as uh, matter, because he thought that the observer the role of the observer's mind needed to be incorporated into a complete theory of the universe. So that was one of his goals. He never quite succeeded in that, but it's an interesting idea. And by the way, these ideas, these debates, don't just stem back to the time of quantum physics. There were debates all the way uh, back in the ancient Greek times about whether or not connections can be instant or do they need a delay. And in fact, Aristotle wrote about another Greek philosopher, Empedocles, and Empedocles had said that light must take time to travel from the sun. And Aristotle said, no, light must be instant to travel from the sun, because if light took time, you would see all the intermediate steps. You would see light traveling through space. And you don't, since you don't see sunlight traveling through space, light must come from the sun instantly. So Aristotle wrongly believed that the speed of light was infinity. And it took centuries, as I show in my book, for people to pin down the spin of light, speed of light. Even Galileo tried to use people with beacons on widely separated hills to try to measure the speed of light. Someone would take a beacon and cover it and then uncover it 
and then another person on another hill would try to to see how long that takes to go between the two hills and they weren't quite accurate enough to figure out whether the speed of light was finite or infinite but Galileo strongly believed that the speed of light must be finite he just was frustrated that he never established it and it wasn't until much later and especially the time of Albert Michelson that very high precision experiments were conducted which showed that light has a finite speed and that means that certain types of information in nature take a long time or a certain amount of time to travel but then you have this quantum entanglement thing which is seems instantaneous so you have these two webs in nature you have this web of causal connections which takes place at the speed of light or longer and you have this web of entanglement connections or synchronicity which takes place instantly so a complete theory of nature would need to take both of these into account and we're still not really close to figuring out how the two mesh sort of mind-boggling when you think about it. There's no limits on the distance that these things can be entangled and send their information. You could have it across a galaxy, have that information sent instantaneously. Yes, and some because of that, some quantum physicists think that space-time is really an illusion and that you should really be look, looking at the wave functions, which can ban an indefinite, indefinite amount of space and time. So if you just don't worry about spatial distances then everything is fine because you can just have things belonging to the same quantum state that are thousands or millions of miles away from each other. But we as humans tend to, to think in terms of distances. And so it's puzzling to us to think that things can be conveyed instantly over such a long distance. By the way, another mundane example of quantum information being con conveyed instantaneously is things like superconductors, things like magnetic levitation trains, which run on the basis of perfect magnets, which are cooled to very low temperatures and made of superconducting material. And the superconductors are a series of pairs of electrons that are linked over huge distances, can be linked indefinitely. And just like soldiers mar marching uh, rank, you have these states completely aligned indefinitely for indefinite uh, amounts of distance. So it, it's really kind of fascinating that you can have these systems which seem to defy the ideas of space and time. They seem to be able to be indefinitely large. How did Jung and Pauli see their ideas change and influence, and what, what, what did they make of the science? So Jung and Pauli worked together until about 1957. Pauli lived only until 1958, so he died fairly young, and Jung uh, survived him by a couple of years. There really wasn't time in their, in their old age to, to consider. Pauli didn't really live long to consider how the ideas would change. So Pauli never really witnessed all the changes in particle physics and so forth in the 1960s. He would have been amazed by all the experiments about symmetries and non-symmetries, such as, for example, the CP violation experiments, which are violations of a rule that if you change the charge 
of a set of particles and you change the parity, meaning the mirror, mirror image state, uh, you should get the same thing. But experiments in the 1960s show that that's not the case. If Pauli had lived longer, he might have been surprised how much more complicated particle physics was than he had originally realized. Now, interestingly, in Pauli's final year, he didn't really communicate very much with Jung. And there are speculations that maybe he started to think that Jung's ideas were a little bit too far flung for him. Because Pauli fundamentally was very cynical. He could be very critical of others. And he somehow was never very critical of Jung until maybe his final year, 1958, Pauli stopped corresponding with Jung, and he also um, sent a letter to another investigator of the paranormal, an American uh, worker named uh, J.B. Ryan, who was doing psychic experiments, and expressed some uh, skepticism towards those. So maybe Pally was starting to become a little skeptical of the whole mind-manner connection by his last year of life. So we don't really know if that would have continued or if he would have gone back to working with Jung. But it, it seems clear that Pauli was fundamentally sc- cynical about things and always believed in scientific testing. So he, his ideas may very well have changed as the years progressed. We were just talking with Dr. Paul Halpern, new book, Synchronicity, The Epic Quest to Understand the Quantum Nature of Cause and Effect. Dr. Halpern, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.